0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: What does it mean to be an American conservative in 2022? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. As a black man, I'm a member of a community whose human and civil rights are too often up for debate or on the ballot. Given that Republicans are the primary reason why this happens, I'm constantly trying to make sense of what conservatives are thinking, saying, and doing. And not just about people of color. What do Republicans want, for instance, in Ukraine? Do they want President Biden to provide more support to Ukraine, perhaps in the form of American military force? or? Do they actually support Vladimir Putin, the man trying to crush Ukraine? When you hear sound bites like this from North Carolina Congressman Madison Cawthorn describing Ukraine and its president, it's tough to tell. They better, but remember that is a bug. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies and really just the new woke world. I needed someone to decode all this for me, which is why I called Charlie Sykes. He's the co-founder and editor of The Bulwark, one of the few sites on the internet that features intellectually honest debate about conservatism and its role in our politics. Charlie was a former Democratic candidate for the Wisconsin State Assembly before becoming a journalist. He may be best known for hosting an influential conservative talk show on WTMJ radio from 1993 to 2016. Ever since Donald Trump first announced his candidacy for president, Charlie has written and spoken frankly about the damage Trump and his acolytes in the Republican Party have done to this country. Still, Charlie and his colleagues at The Bulwark invite left-leaning folks like myself to interrogate our beliefs through a new lens. He wrote recently for The Bulwark about what he called the pro-Putin wing of the GOP. And that's where I wanted to start our conversation. Charlie Sykes, thanks for joining us on Vox Conversations.
2: Hey, my pleasure. In your recent
1: column, Charlie, you gave President Biden a lot of credit for how he's handling Vladimir Putin and Russia's assault on Ukraine. But you called one aspect of that dangerous. I'm curious
2: to know what troubles you. Well, first of all, I mean, I do want to give him a lot of credit. The the way that he has put the alliance together has been very, very impressive. I think his use of intelligence uh, has been masterful, calling out What Russian intentions were before they did it. I'm completely satisfied with the economic sanctions that he's put in place. Uh, I was a little concerned that he might pull his punches when it came to uh, energy, but he didn't. So um, all of those things are kudos. My concern is that he is putting himself in somewhat of a box, that he's making some rhetorical mistakes that might actually be regretted later on, and specifically what I'm talking about, is when he says that if we get into any sort of a military conflict with Russia, that is World War III. Well, first of all, it's not clear why it's World War. Second, all conflicts do not result in full-out war. And the problem of using World War III is, is it kind of seems to accept Vladimir Putin's red line, that he has defined that in that way, in order to deter more aggressive NATO action. Mm -hmm. So the question is, once you've said it, said, hey, if if there's any shooting, it's World War III, then what is he going to say when we step up perhaps in Moldova or will we not? Uh, What about NATO countries? Are we going to go to World War III for Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania? It's a rhetorical mistake, I think. Right. And on that point, we agree. I think it's an escalation
1: that just wasn't necessary. And like you said, it actually buys into the framing that Putin's putting forward. I'm curious to know what other intellectually honest conservatives like yourself are saying about this and how he's handling this. And also, just do you think that there are
2: better ideas on the table? there are some but look i'm also aware of the limitations of my expertise here i understand that we live in an era where we are all covid experts and then we suddenly become <laughs> right. all experts in international relationship <laughs> and and warfare so with that caveat i guess what i'm i'm concerned about is will the world sit by and watch the annihilation of the ukrainian people will the west which has said never again allow again If we start to see Russia use, say, for example, chemical weapons on a city like Kyiv, are we going to say we are not going to go in with humanitarian Berlin-style airlifts to relieve the people because that would be World War III? This is one of my concerns. What are the better ideas? I am a little bit unclear why we have drawn a bright red line saying giving the Ukrainians MiG-29s would be escalatory. But giving them drones that kill tanks is not. We give the Ukrainians weapons that kill Russian soldiers all the time. We're about to give them a lot more. The drones have proven to be incredibly lethal. We may use them against ships if they try to land at Odessa. So why not the airplanes? Maybe that's a better idea. The one idea that seems the best to me, however is to give the Ukrainians everything we can in terms of surface-to-air missiles, air defense weapons that we possibly can, just to open up the spigots. I, I know that President Zelensky, who spoke to Congress, You know, has a list of things that, that he wants. And I think there's been reluctance to give some of that technology to them, but I do think that we need to do more because I think that there's going to be a backlash if we watch this mass genocide in Ukraine or if Ukraine falls I think that there will be very bitter recriminations by the Ukrainians that we sat back and did nothing. And I think that the American people will, whatever their many different opinions right now, will see that as a sign of weakness. Speaking of technology, I mean, how do you think we can,
1: we being the United States, can do a better job of countering Russian aggression in the information space? Not just in terms of cyber attacks, but also in terms of propaganda.
2: Well, I actually think we've done a pretty good job with that outside of Russia. I mean, that's the caveat. I I think that Mm. while Ukraine has won the uh, social media war worldwide, the propaganda war worldwide, we shouldn't be under any illusions. We shouldn't tell ourselves stories about what's going on in Russia, where we are seeing the power of disinformation. Uh, Russians, I think, are surprised by the success and the scope and the size of Russian propaganda and how effective it has been with the Russian people. So the other puzzling is what do we do in an open society where you have people like Fox News that are willing to air flat out Russian propaganda, pro-Putin talking points? I, I heard somebody say, we, you know, we ought to have the Department of Justice, you know, investigate them. No, we can't go down that road. We do still have a First Amendment, but it is it is a challenge.
1: Yeah, and and that's the thing. I mean, as much as I deplore what's happening on Fox News, even before this, they are media. And, you know, given the freedoms that we seek to protect, you know, I mean, it honestly gets us into a whole debate about the Constitution and what maybe needs to be reformed or changed. But really, at the end of the day, I mean, this Trumpian moment, I would say, is testing the boundaries. It's finding all the holes in the boat. Of the, you know, the American experiment. And obviously, if Donald Trump was president right now, things would be ostensibly worse. Mm. But I'm curious to know what will happen. I mean, this guy's going to run for president again. If he assumes the presidency in 2025 and there's an aggressive Russia that's still determined to annex more Eastern European countries, I mean, are we going to be sending troops to help them?
2: I think about this every day, and I think that this is, you know, for people who say, well, you're obsessed with Donald Trump. Well, because Donald Trump is obsessed with Donald Trump, and Donald Trump might be the president of the United States again, which is truly extraordinary when you think about it. Yeah, The man has completely discredited and disgraced himself in every possible way. The people who are closest to him, his vice president, his attorney general, uh, his national security advisor, his chief of staff have all basically said, you know, this guy's nuts. You know, he's delusional. And yet they will vote to put him back into the Oval right. Office and, Jameel, give him the nuclear codes. Yeah. I mean, think about it. This country may give Donald fucking Trump the nuclear codes again. Now, to your question, if he gets back into office 2025, what will he do to NATO? I mean, we're seeing this amazing revival of the Western coalition and NATO, but all it takes to break that is Donald Trump back in the presidency.
1: Yeah. It kills me that you know they're willing to wait until the you know, the term is over and they can publish a book and make money off of their confessions, of course. And you know they're still like, <laughs> despite all of these confessions, I'd still vote to put this man in office. I mean, you know, I think even to CPAC a couple of weeks ago, I wonder seriously if you can even be a presidential contender if you're not acting like Trump, like Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, was doing. wokeism is a form of cultural Marxism. It is not just about raising taxes or bad economic policy. It's about tearing at the fabric of our society and trying to replace it with something that will be
3: much, much more sinister. And the problem that we face as conservatives is a lot of major institutions in our country have become infected with this woke virus.
1: Is there room for... Never Trumpers like yourself (laughs) within your own party?
2: Not at the moment. No, and I think it would be delusional to say that there is room at the moment. But see, here's the big question. You know, over the last six years, we have kept thinking, well, this will be the turning point. Well, this will be the breaking point. Well, you know, the Republican Party is not going to continue supporting this. Remember what we all thought on January 7th. Uh, Republicans, one after another, were breaking with Trump, you know, saying how he had discredited himself. Members of his cabinet were resigning. But how long did that last? It's like there's this huge force field, this force of gravity that sucks people back to the Trumpian crazy. So the question is, will that happen again now when once again he is displaying his unfitness for office? Right. So I don't know. And to your question, there are some hopeful signs. I know that Josh Krashauer has a great piece in the National Journal where he he says uh, there's a possibility that Donald Trump-endorsed candidates might be wiped out in the upcoming primaries, that Republican voters might reject many of the nominees supported by Trump, which would suggest that some of the juice is draining out. But right now, to be honest, this Republican nomination is his for the asking.
1: Yeah, I saw that column as well. And my question for Josh would be like, how is this any different than say when like there are three people from the same team nominated for MVP and one of them might still win it? <laughs> one of them might still win the MVP award. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily that they're all going to take the votes away from one another. It's
2: like that to me is kind of cold comfort. You know what I mean? It's I, just I, I, I can't give you much comfort except it's a piece for Politico where I said, look, all of these Republican hawks, you know, are talking a good game, big game on on Ukraine, but none of them are gonna break with Trump on this. Mm -hmm. And I started to think maybe I was wrong. Maybe this was going to be the one, but of course that was naive because as far as I know, not one Republican has said, okay, because of what Donald Trump has said about Vladimir Putin, the way he appeased Russia, the way he tried to shake down and extort the president of Ukraine. That's my breaking point. We cannot have him as president anymore. I don't know that anyone has even said that. Not a single elected official anywhere. I keep looking for somebody. So at this point, they may break with the policy, but they're not breaking with the man. Yeah. And of course, we know why they won't do it because voters
1: won't let him go. Now, the question then is, what does Donald Trump do for these people? He didn't do much for them as, as president. There's very little evidence that they actually were helped his voting base. You're talking about, say, rural, white, Christian or evangelical. Yeah. Are their lives ostensibly better because of Donald Trump's presidency? Well, I mean, they may feel better about being who they are, but are they actually better? I don't know if they have that to sell. But at the end of the day, politics has just kind of become, in a way, I think, entertainment for his base.
2: I think you're right. Which makes sense, given the fact that he's an entertainer. It's funny you should say that, because I was actually thinking about this last night, how the two parties, there's an asymmetry. The Democrats think that government is about, like, hey, let's do things for people. Let's, like, deal with the economy. And Republicans right now are like, no. We're, like, doing stuff about CRT and gays and transsexuals. So the answer to your question, what does he do for them? Um, he hates the people they hate, and um, he punches. He he identifies the enemies, and he fights them. That seems to be the essence of it. It's not about policies. It's not about ideology. It's about attitude. It's about posturing. So it is a very different style of politics. And, and you see that with guys like Ron DeSantis. Yeah who has decided that he's going to make himself into sort of Trump, a Trumpian figure, or in your state of Ohio, where you have <laughs> Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance in this weird race to who can dumb themselves down to make themselves as credible culture warriors you know, faster.
0: I believe this election was stolen from Donald J. Trump. It was stolen from you and from me. They stole the election. We cannot move on from 2020 until we fully investigate. Our own investigate voters, Laura. Uh,
2: think about how many media personalities have been censored for pointing out the fact that you've got floods of people coming across the southern border, uh, completely unchecked. Of course, bringing uh, fentanyl, which is killing our people, bringing sex trafficking. They're censoring that too. At the end of the day, uh, by the way, I'm in Wisconsin, so I cannot cast any aspersions on the crazy in Ohio. But still, it is interesting watching that. I was going to say, could we talk about Scott Walker for a second? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we've gone way past Scott Walker now. I mean, it's the thing in the Republican Party is there's this constant sidestep to, OK, we're going to take a crazy position. And then someone takes an even crazier position and then somebody laps them even crazy and they keep moving and moving and moving. And nobody wants yeah. to say, OK, can we just draw a line here? They've been reluctant to do that. I mean, it's astounding
1: the lines of argument, how much further and further extreme that they go. But again, it lends to the idea that this is all for entertainment. I mean, you see DeSantis, you know, kind of embracing the Trump juvenile quality, calling it the Brandon administration.
3: Anybody that stands up and speaks the truth will come under fire. That is going to happen. And so in times like these, there is no substitute for courage Having, having the, courage the courage to stand, stand in, in the way, way of, of the Brandon, Brandon administration.
1: administration. I mean, why don't they just come out and say it? Why don't they just say, fuck Joe Biden, instead of, you know,
2: let's go, Brandon. Like, what is... Well, they are. I, I mean, this is really what it's gone down to. I mean, we, we've gone from the conservative mind, you know, used to be expressed by people like Charles Krauthammer and uh, George Will, and, and now it's, <laughs> let's go, Brandon, which is like one inch away from our entire policy is fuck Joe Biden. Yep. I mean, you remember when we used to like say that, well, you know, this is bumper sticker politics. Bumper sticker politics is actually far more articulate and substantive than what we have now.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's not just fuck Joe Biden. It's fuck Joe Biden and everybody who is in his base. Yeah. (laughs) Because we're coming after the voting rights of people of color. We're coming after trans kids. We're using them as a culture war mascot or or cudgel. And we're going after abortion rights. Hardcore. You know, basically, it's just like the upset the liberals strategy, like just piss off the liberals and yeah, just
2: trigger the libs,
1: which, yeah. OK, you get a kick out of triggering libs. But I mean, people's lives are at stake and yeah, that doesn't matter.
2: Can I just, uh, just get to break that down a little bit? Because the anti-abortion position is pretty standard in Republican politics. That's really not new. But I have to tell you, I'm kind of puzzled by one thing. The emphasis on, say, you know, homosexuals The don't say gay bill that they've called it in Florida what puzzles me about it is you remember that when Donald Trump was running for president, he went out of his way to say that he supported gay rights. Right. So he did not make that part of his agenda, and yet it has become really a central part of the agenda of the Trumpian right. And that's kind of an interesting development because it's another sort of an indicator that Trump doesn't lead as much as sometimes he will sort of trigger things or he will set a fire that takes on a life of its own. Yeah. I mean, Trump's entire public life has been about punching down.
1: I mean, it's the guy who called for the execution of five teenagers (laughs) uh, without any kind of proof as to their culpability in the Central Park attack. And never apologized for that, right? No, he's never – not only has he never apologized for it, but he came out in opposition to the award that New York City gave them when they were exonerated, legally exonerated. <sighs> I mean, the key is to just continue to perpetuate the fiction that the other is somehow responsible for whatever you are going through. And that, to me, is the central tenet of yes. what Republican politics have become, not just under Trump, but, I mean – it's more overt than it used to be during reagan i mean we were talking about the crack of cocaine disparity i mean this is not new it's just trump took it to a more explicit level
2: well he he took it also to a a really different level i mean i I don't want to get into a debate about Ronald Reagan. I mean, yes, a lot of these things I think were implicit in Republican politics for a long time. They were they were there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Ronald Reagan was the guy, you know, the, you know, shining city on the hill and if the city must have walls, they would have to have big doors and he was very open on immigration. Contrast that with Donald Trump. You know, when the moment he came down that golden escalator and started talking about Mexican rapists made it clear That the entire thrust of his campaign was to blame the other. It was to blame Mexicans, to blame Chinese, to blame other people for all of the problems. And so you would think that if the Republican Party really had solid principles, that they would say, all right, that's going too far. That's not what we mean. And yet they were willing to accept it, which I think strengthens your argument rather than any defenses that I might try to cobble together. It leads me to another line of thinking though.
1: I mean, the one instance that we've seen him blame the other most often recently, of course, is blaming Mike Pence and everybody else in the world for his election loss. And we could spend this entire conversation talking about January 6th, 2021. I could. But I want to understand to what degree that event encapsulates where conservatism is in the present day.
2: Oof. Well, first of all, I have a hard time telling you what is conservative about conservatism right now. Mm. You know, sometimes words and titles just lose all of their meaning. And I think this is one of the indicators of that. Look, January 6th was in many ways a culmination of what Trump was pushing, the culmination of the big lie. I think this was a real test, another one of the tests that uh, the Republican Party had over the last six years and which it failed each and every one of them, but this was the big one. And you saw that, at least for a moment, a very short period of time, Republicans were repelled by that. you go back and look at Mitch McConnell's statement on the floor of the Senate about Donald Trump's culpability, and it was as strong as anything that, say, Liz Cheney would say, except that he was unwilling to pull the trigger, except he was unwilling to do anything about it. And that encapsulates... The Republican Party, which is they can at some level acknowledge how horrible it is, but they are unwilling to take a stand against it. And, I mean, we could get into the why of
1: that. I mean, of course, it's maintaining power. I get the idea of, like, it's not exclusive to Republicans. Look what Joe Manchin is doing, for goodness sakes. But – We've had enough words, you know what I mean? Like people can say all the things that they want. McConnell can make, you know, oh, he made such a strong and strident speech against Trump. And well, ultimately he didn't hold him responsible for it. And accountability to me is the only way that we actually get to a place where we can have a normal politics. I want to say again, because I don't know if we've ever have, but if we want to actually have a politics that functions for people. And I think that to some degree alludes to what you were saying earlier. Democrats need the system to work. Right. This is what government can do for you and needs to do for you. And, you know, the drown the government in the bathtub folks <laughs> are saying, well, forget about what government can actually help you with. Here's what government can do for you. It can make you feel better about who you are. I don't understand how that works on a national level, to be honest with you, given the demographics of how this country
2: is changing. Well, first of all, let me go back to your point. I'm going to have some radical agreement with you on the the need for accountability. Look, we're really having a test here about whether or not the rule of law is really the rule of law or whether or not someone like Donald Trump is in some ways above the law. And I am old enough to remember Watergate when I think the system did work. When you go back and look at the dozens of members of the Nixon administration who were charged, convicted, and jailed for their role in Watergate. There was radical accountability back then, including what would have been the inevitable impeachment of the president of the United States. Now contrast that with the post-Trump era, where no one in that administration has been held legally accountable the way that Nixon administration officials were. So the system is no longer working the way it used to and i think it exposes how naive we had been about uh, the system of checks and balances which turns out to be more of a metaphor or an honor system than something more fundamental but your point about the way in which politics has become just about resentments i think that that's true and i think that at some point though and and i understand that this might be a little bit controversial and maybe we've done too much of this but It is important to ask how many of these voters, including many of them who voted twice for Barack Obama, got to where they are right now. And I don't have a solid answer for you. Mm. But if you voted twice for Barack Obama and now you are part of this solid Trumpist base, uh, that's an interesting, shall we say, devolution.
1: Ever since the summer of 2015, when now-former President Trump announced his candidacy, the incredulous media have turned their cameras and aimed their microphones at Trump supporters, hoping to capture an explanation for a movement fueled by grievance, resentment, and open animosity toward the government. But what about conservatives who aren't quite ready to give up on government entirely? Or for that matter, what about the many other demographic groups in America who need things from their government? Why can't we flip the script? That's what I'll talk about with Charlie Sykes after a quick break.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, When you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for $15 a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com/slash-gray-area. Forty-five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above forty gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before.
1: my issue unfortunately i think we in the press have spent too much time examining that dynamic i would say you know we've been curious enough about that (laughs) particular point we've not necessarily been curious enough about you know voters who you know actually need things from government (laughs) and hearing what they have to say i'm a midwesterner i've heard enough (laughs) interviews of you know folks in like lonely midwestern towns (laughs) at the coffee shop (laughs) in the coffee shop i'm just done (laughs) <laughs> you know, Charlie. Like these folks, I mean, you would have thought that you know they all lived on Sixth Avenue, right outside of Fox News studios. I mean, it's just yeah. it's unbelievable how often we get to hear from those people, not just on Fox News, but in the bigger outlets that are supposedly liberal. And we don't hear about what Black voters want. We don't hear about what Latino and Indigenous voters want and need. And we don't hear about trans voters and what, what they need from this society. Okay, because at the end of the day, the rule of law is against a lot of folks still. Yep. And that's not getting changed fast enough.
2: Well, all right, let me let me flip this around so that we don't have too much radical agreement here. <laughs> okay, yes. Please. I don't I don't disagree with what you said, but I also think look, I live in Wisconsin and we are one of these states that's on the razor's edge that will determine who wins the twenty twenty-four election. And the control of Congress is decided by people who live in these swing states. And I, because I've been on the other side, I run through my head on a regular basis, how does this issue play among the voters who are going to decide who wins Wisconsin? Right. And I do think that there are moments of introspection that both parties need to have. It's like, okay, how do we address this particular moment here? And I think that Democrats are going to be going through this big time after November, when I think that they are going to suffer a rather significant setback for a variety of reasons, uh, which we can go into, the president's approval rating, the economy, a lot of things. And this is a good moment for political parties to say, "Okay, are we talking to the voters we need to be talking to? Or are we talking at them? Are we talking down to them? Are we ignoring them? Mm. And there are issues out there. And again, I'm certainly not the only person to say this, that there is that sense that particularly among progressive elites, that they are elites that ignore broad swaths of the electorate mm-hmm. and that there is a reaction against that. Now, whether that's justified or not, I'm just telling you just some of the, the hard truths.
1: No, it, it needs to be recognized. And I certainly don't leave Democrats out of the realm of criticism because, you know, certainly they need to do a better job of talking to certain people. But at the same time, when somebody's determined to vote for somebody because that person is going to make them feel better or echoes their particular worldview, which is completely bonkers. Uh, you're not gonna beat <laughs> around the bush on that. You see the fervor of these parents at these school board meetings. Don't teach my kid critical race theory. Well, your kid's not being taught critical race theory, ma'am. What I see there is this manifestation of what may be modern conservatism, which is this rejection of a world that people no longer care to understand and that they don't want their kids to understand. I don't understand how you combat that. It's probably why I'm not a politician.
2: (laughs) Well, see, what you're describing, though, is the problem of dealing with bad faith argumentation in politics. So the, the debate about CRT, and, you know, look, there is a legitimate intellectual debate about actual CRT, but that's not what's taking place. I thought it was very interesting that One of the architects of this whole movement, Christopher Rufo, who I think is a complete charlatan, tweeted out, sort of gave away the game where he said, you know, my goal is to have, you know, an environment where people read something that makes them uncomfortable or that they don't like, and they immediately think critical race theory, whatever it is. So he basically was admitting that what he wanted to do was blur all the lines and make anything that would make some white person uncomfortable well, look, we used to call this white backlash, you know, back in the 60s. And mm-hmm. this is the same sort of thing that you're convincing people that something is going on when it is not. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some things that are going to make people uncomfortable. But I guess I would think that again, and I'm sorry to do this because I actually find this kind of <laughs> tedious, the whole thing about what the messaging should be. I do think that there's a sort of a fundamental fairness out there that uh, the Democrats could appeal to, including going after the book burners and the book banners. Right. I think that that is something that they ought to emphasize more. Now, let's be honest about it. That's a little bit problematic because you have folks on the left who have also been interested in banning books that make people feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. This goes both ways, but this might be a good time to have a center-right, center-left, small-L liberal democracy coalition in favor of free speech and against book banning. Right. Engaging in
1: that, in my opinion, would actually help people to not make false equivalences between what the right and the left have been doing in this regard. I mean, they're trying to ban how to be an anti-racist, and the 1619 Project And whether or not people agree with what Nicole and so many other people put into that 1619 project, I'm sorry. like The debate should be had about whether or not the current America that we have began, not in 1776 with the end of the revolution, but in fact with the inception of chattel slavery. And I don't know if you've been down to the Legacy Museum down in Montgomery, Alabama that Brian Stevenson and Equal Justice Initiative have erected, but the story's all there. I mean, it's very plain to see that it's not just the fact that this was a horrible injustice and murderous thing that you know people who settled this country did. But at the same time, it's the fact that the economy of this country, a lot of wealth that people are enjoying today came from this, stems from this. And people don't want to realize that or take that into account because they would rather buy into a narrative that they have earned everything that they have. I don't know what politician is going to convince them otherwise. And that's something I think Republicans, not all of them, but I think a good number of them are taking advantage
2: of. True. But let me say that I think the real tragedy is that I I think there was a moment when we were on the cusp of having that discussion, and, and not everybody was going to engage in good faith, but I do think that there was a moment when people were saying, you know what, we need to come to grips with this history. We need to know more about this, and we need to deal with this legacy. And unfortunately, like many of these moments, it felt like it lasted about five minutes because then the bad faith actors came in. You know, it's interesting because I've been reading this last year because of coronavirus and because I had no life. (laughs) I read a lot about the 1850s, the lead up to the Civil War and the role of the fugitive slave act and and then of course I've been reading very extensively about the history of reconstruction which was much more horrible than I think we've understood. I think one of the things that got lost in American history was we thought okay we had this big civil war and then we solved the problem of slavery and then Martin Luther King um gave his I have a dream speech. Wait wait wait, wait there was like a 100 there was like 100 years in there in which some really ghastly things happened and I will tell you that one of the moments for me was learning about the Tulsa massacre and realizing I'm kind of a history buff. I thought I was pretty up on American history and I had never heard of the Tulsa massacre. And I admitted this in public and a lot of other people came forward and said, you know, we hadn't heard about it as well. And then found out there were a lot of other things like that, completely memory hold. So here's the moment where we go, we really need to have this moment. Yes. Now, we get sidetracked by the people who want to play the card of racial resentment. And I have to, again, I'll push back a little bit. Like, There's a lot of validity in the 1619 Project, but there are a lot of flaws as well. Okay. And a lot of historians have raised questions about it. And when you say the true founding of the country is 1619 rather than 1776, what you do is you put a lot of people on defensive, and rather than listening— to this need to reevaluate, you make it like, well, okay, are you indicting all of American history? I think, by the way, Joe Biden gets this. But where I got to push back on
1: that is fine. Like, an indictment of American history is necessary. There's blood at the root of the American project. And we need to understand that if we're ever going to perfect the very good ideas at the basis of that project. Listen, a lot of these men who created America, wrote the Constitution, all of that— Owned people, <laughs> they thought they owned people. They held people in bondage and made profit from their labor. And we should be talking about that. We should be understanding where I, this I wealth don't came dis- from. I, look, I don't. The problem is you're pointing to is the fact that we no one was educated about this. We didn't learn about this in school. I only learned about it because my parents made me read about Black history outside of school because I wasn't taught it, <laughs> and they knew that I needed to learn it. And that's the problem that we're confronting.
2: Well, see, this is what's so frustrating about it, because I think you're right about that. On the other hand, most of the critiques of the 1619 Project came from historians on the left who were saying that it was flawed. And so therefore, when you want to teach that in schools, it becomes a legitimate issue to talk about. But let me just tell you how strongly I agree with you on, on some of the history. So when I was reading the book, about a Fugitive Slave Act. I think it was called The War Before the War. Fantastic book. And the role of the Fugitive Slave Act passed in 1850 in really dividing the country. In the first chapter of the book, I learned something that I should have known. And I am not proud to tell you this, that really the Fugitive Slave Act was actually written into the Constitution. Oh, yeah. The first edition of the It's right there the fuck there mm-hmm. and I put the book down and I went and looked at it and I asked my wife I said did you know this I said look at this this was actually in the constitution and so these are the kinds of conversations that I think Americans need to have and I think that it was starting to happen and there were people on the right who were willing to do it until basically it became this bright red line and I think this is a tragedy I have to t- I just think it's a tragedy that we have become divided about this. And there's going to be a way of doing it that says that let's come to grips with this without indicting the American idea, without inducing individual guilt and everything. It's sort of like the old thing, you know, if I say to you, you know what, I think you're ugly and your mother smells bad. Would you like to hear my ideas about taxes now?
1: But here's the thing, though, Charlie. I think the people would understand that we're not actually calling them racist right if we're actually talking about what happened in the past and they would know that if they knew the history if they knew the history they would not probably feel as guilty or maybe they would i don't know depending upon where their wealth comes from i mean to me the problem is not how people feel it's about let's face what america
2: actually is so we can actually improve it well i the arc of history does not bend necessarily towards you know mutual understanding and tolerance or uh, addressing these things unless we bend it, and you have these folks who've decided that for whatever advantage, and whether it's winning elections or whether it's clicks or ratings, they have decided that they are going to play this card. And I have to tell you, again, this is what's so uh, offensive to me, that I know many of the people who've been caught up in this, and I cannot help thinking that had their better angels appeared to them, they might have gone in a different direction, that none of this is inevitable. And this is what I think it makes some of these demagogues so culpable because people are not one way or another. They're not good or bad or or racist or not racist. I think that they can be told, you know, through education, can be brought to deeper understanding. And so many of the people who I think could have with proper leadership and proper education gone in a more constructive way have now bought into this sort of, you know, team red, let's demagogue this issue. And I think that's uh, that's a tragedy, and I think it's an intellectual crime. And to me, it's never about necessarily who people are. It's
1: about what they've done or they're doing. You know, you see the arc of history bending away from justice in areas like voter suppression, for instance. This is a tool I see mostly Republican elected officials using to essentially make sure that things don't change. And... I'm just kind of curious to know what you think of the spread of voter suppression, particularly in advance of the 2022 elections. What kind of threat do you see to everyone? It's not just simply to the voting privileges of uh, folks who look like me.
2: Well, first of all, I mean, you know, if I had been in Congress, I would have voted for the John Lewis Act. I think that that was a sort of a minimal step to take. And I'm I have to say that it's a sign of just how incredibly polarized we are that that didn't get much Republican support, if any Republican support. I mean, remember, the original Voting Rights Act in 1965 passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. When it was reauthorized, it was overwhelming bipartisan support. And so now it's become this partisan issue. One of my main concerns here is that almost all of these changes are made out of bad faith, that they are driven by the big lie about voter fraud that's been spread. They are not being done in order to enhance voter integrity or voter security. So that's part of the problem is why is this happening? In terms of whether we'll actually suppress votes, I think that may be the intention. I'm unclear how effective it will be. I just don't know. And I'll be honest, uh, my main concern has been about the counting of votes, including the incredible cynicism of Republicans, who I think are perfectly capable of doing the kinds of things that were anticipated on uh, January 6th. Do you feel like there are any valid complaints on the conservative or Republican side with regards to
1: how elections are held?
2: Let me think about that. I actually, and I think you and I may disagree about this. I, I would suggest that Voter ID is not the hill that I think that uh, progressives want to die on, or at least Democrats want to die on. There's overwhelming bipartisan support for voter IDs, including among African-American voters, as long as the IDs are made readily available and free as they are. And I think that that was acknowledged at some point during the debate. But in general, I think that the concerns about voter fraud in retrospect are almost all illusory. And the responses, uh, the things that are being done, I think are, again, being done out of the attempted deception of the 2020 election. Look, I mean, is there some magic number of days that we should have pre-voting? I don't know. I just think the principle should be that it should be as easy to vote as possible and that it should be public policy to have as many people vote to expand the electorate as much as possible. And I'm not sure that all Republicans believe that.
1: We usually hear Republican members of Congress go on the record as worried about our democracy. Those few who do are ostracized by fellow Republicans. But recently, at a closed-door fundraiser, one senator evidently expressed real concern that autocracy might be a more natural state of society than democracy, and that we're in danger of having autocracy spread right here in America. I'll ask Charlie about these remarks after one last quick break. So Mitt Romney, just yesterday, we're taping this on March 16th, he said that uh, autocracy is the, quote, default setting uh, with authoritarian leaders at every turn. This is the full quote. We are really the only significant experiment in democracy, speaking of the United States, and preserving liberal democracy is an extraordinary challenge. I'm curious to know, bringing this back to what's happening in Ukraine, to what degree do you see what Putin is doing? as an assault on liberal democracy. And is that why you've seen so many Republicans embrace
2: what he's doing? Uh, Yes. I mean, there's a lot going on there, including um, there's a lot of Russian history. There's a lot of his desire to be Peter the Great again. But I do think that it is a fundamental assault on liberal democracy. And I think that's the way the Ukrainians see it. And I think that's one of the reasons why this resonates around the world so much, that people understand that Vladimir Putin does not want a successful liberal democracy at his doorstep. I also think that there's an unusual moment that we have right now for people in this country who are fighting for democracy to link our fight for democracy with the Ukrainian fight for democracy. And I, I hope that Joe Biden picks up on some of what Romney was saying there. So put this into context that there is this anti-democratic, anti-liberal aggression going on. It's happening there. It's also happening here. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Vladimir Putin has done is he's destroyed our complacency about that. Now, if we could find a way to apply that to the domestic authoritarians, I think that that might be a way of resetting the debate. You asked about why there are people on the far right who are supportive of vladimir putin which by the way could we just say how truly extraordinary this is watching quote-unquote conservatives being defenders of someone like a vladimir putin and part of it is this weird anti-liberal post-liberal belief that he is the defender of christian western civilization and somehow that that his authoritarianism supports their values It's an ugly strain. It's a minority strain for now. But um, I think they're being exposed. I think right now they are being exposed in a way that they perhaps did not anticipate. I'm curious to know how that all continues to resonate, because
1: you see also there's sort of an idolatry going on with, I'd say, conservative voters in regards to trump and you see how it wasn't just like hey we like trump and we think he's the best president no it was you know let's picture him you know as a guy on a motorcycle with an eight-pack with a bald eagle on his shoulder Uh, velociraptor right exactly and and i see you know vladimir putin mr shirtless on the horse guy to some degree i wonder if this is about how people
2: understand or idolize white masculinity Oh, I think that's absolutely the case, which has got to be killing uh, somebody like Donald Trump, who is, you know, one of the biggest man babies in in America to watch this guy (laughs) who is this five foot seven guy that he thought he could bully Vladimir uh, Zelensky being the manliest man on the whole planet. Okay, it's like. This is what a really courageous leader looks like. This is interesting Mm -hmm. because, you know, right now, who is the strongest figure? But yeah, there there is this weird, um, almost the pornification of these political figures, that they are manly and masculine and they're going to punch you in the face. And this is also one of those strange moments where when did conservatives, including evangelical Christians, decide that the bully on the playground... Was the role model that they wanted to embrace. That somehow their definition of manliness was the guy without the shirt who was going to, you know, punch, you know, smaller, weaker people in the face. Can I just also mention something else? Because this relates, as I was thinking about this before we started, in terms of losing messages. Remember how the right, if you've noticed how the right and clean people like Ted Cruz really bought into this narrative somehow that the U.S. military was weak because it was too woke. Our (laughs) military was weak in contrast to the manly masculine warriors of the Russian military. You actually had Republican U.S. senators put out videos that contrasted American soldiers unfavorably with what they thought the Russian military looked like. And how is that going for them right now? How did that age? Yeah. Right. They're so
1: eager to use wokeness as this pejorative. I mean, first of all, like hardly anybody says that word, but conservatives these days. And second of all, isn't what they simply call woke or politically correct to use an older term? Isn't that just simply compassion? I mean, just like, oh, my gosh, the Western society is crumbling because we're forced to use different pronouns. Like, (laughs) I mean, just learn the pronouns. Call people what they want to be called. How hard is that?
2: It is interesting how compassion has become. Uh, you uh, probably, uh, because you have better taste than I do, are familiar with a with a writer of right wing sort of violence porn named Kurt Schlichter, who is also a columnist for townhall.com. I mean, you know, he's oh, I actually, know who he is. Oh, you do know who he is? Okay, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, he's Hugh Hewitt's backup on the radio. So, I mean, he's he's in the conservative movement. And a year or so ago, there was a picture on social media of a baby who was a refugee, I think a Syrian refugee, who had drowned and was washed up on the beach, a, th- a three-year-old little girl. Do you remember this story? hmm yes, I do. And Kurt Schlichter tweeted out, I don't care. And he eventually deleted it, but it was it was an honest and sincere expression of the fact that he didn't give a shit, but also this sort of embrace of the manly, macho, new right-wing posture of non-compassion, of a cultivated cruelty, I think that we've seen over and over and over again. But the cultivated cruelty as an expression of manliness, we have seen this before in history. This is not the first time that we've seen it. I think it would be naive to think that it is new, but but we used to call it by different names than conservatism. Yeah, we have only had a liberal democracy
1: that Romney's talking about, that liberal democracy. We've only had that since the 1965 Voting Rights Act. So, you know, we're talking about not just... You know, within my grandparents' lifetimes, within my parents' lifetimes, since my father was out of high school by then. That's how recent this is. And so we have to think about this country as being very new. It really is a very young country, and it can still be steered and changed in a lot of different ways. Of course, you know, if climate change burns us all up, then that's a whole (laughs) different story. But in that light, (laughs) as we delve into the dark humor, why do you stay
2: a Republican? (laughs) I'm just curious to know Not that I'm challenging that. Oh, I am not a Republican. Oh, oh, oh I am not. Oh, no, I, I I do not. I do not consider myself a Republican. I stand corrected. No, no, no. Because um, first of all, I don't, I'm an only child, so I don't work well or play well with others and I don't like to join things, but <laughs> uh, the Republican party doesn't stand for anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's become a uh, cult of personality why would I want to be associated with it in any way whatsoever? Why would I want to enable it? So, no, I, I have not considered myself a Republican for some time. Could I go back to the point you just made about us being a young country, though? By all means. This, I think, is a very interesting point, and I appreciate it more the older I get. My wife and I will often say, we'll watch a movie and we'll go, do you realize that that movie was 30 years ago? And then you think, okay, so what was 30 years before that? And realize how really it is not that long a period of time. And I think when you get to be a certain age, you look back and you go, okay, so when I was young, I thought 20 years was forever. Now you look back and you go, okay, I can remember that. <laughs> so I remember right around, the say, 1980, I think that a lot of white Americans would have thought, okay, so it's 1980, and we've kind of solved the civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. We have fixed all of those problems and now you look back and realize, wait, that was 15, only 15 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act. You weren't even getting warmed up. And yet there was that sense that that was, well, that's what happened in the past. That was a long time ago. And it wasn't that long ago. It was less than 20 years from, uh, you know, the march on on Washington. Uh, you know, it was it was mm-hmm. uh, only two decades from what happened in, you know, the bombings in, in Birmingham. And so your point that This stuff is actually pretty new, and I think one of the things we're learning now is how fragile it was, that it didn't take root, and that that many of these changes, you know, are going to take decades. They shouldn't take decades, but they do. But I do think that there was a certain smugness that we'd done that, we'd solved that problem. Let's move on. So my question then,
1: getting back to um, how you identify yourself. So you are the editor-at-large of The Bulwark, which is a lot of people identify as conservative, Mm. and... You used to be with the young Dems. I mean, you ran as a Democrat against Jim Sensenbrenner. What do you think about embracing that label again?
2: Uh, I don't want to embrace any label. I don't want to. I see the problem was that I I think um, I lost my way by becoming involved with the tribe. And I don't want to be part of any other tribe. So right now, I think like a lot of other Americans, I feel like I'm a political orphan. And I'm comfortable with it. One of the things that. And I look back with a lot of regrets on a lot of things. And I have, we could spend a lot of time on that. But, <laughs> Amen. you know, you get caught up in being part of a team, uh, being part of a tribe. And when you break away from it, yeah, you lose a lot, but also it's really liberating because you can begin to look at things with a fresh eye mm-hmm. and you don't have to take, uh, you know, from column A and from column B. And because you, you know, you're part of this tribe, you must believe all of these things. And I do find it refreshing and it does enable me to ask these questions. And I'm much more comfortable, you know, saying an answer to some of your questions, which is, I just have no idea, I don't know. And also to say, you know, this is what I said, or this is what I wrote, and now I believe I was completely wrong. And let me tell you why I was wrong. Or this is what I thought was going to happen that turned out not to happen. So I think this is one of the advantages if you break out of the silos, It can be a little bit disorienting, but I also, I find it really freeing. But again, um, I I do understand the people who do not want to be disoriented, who want to be in the cocoon, who want to make sure that they're, you know, still friends with all people they were still friends with. And I think that describes a lot of Republicans who basically are like, this is the business that we have chosen and that we're in it. But no, you haven't sworn a blood oath. You can take the jersey off. Right. Mixing my metaphors. (laughs) Charlie Sykes I really
1: appreciate your time thank you for joining us on Vox Conversations it's my pleasure Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas our editor is Amy Drozdovska Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at Conversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And come back next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.